Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted that we are welcoming Rachel Kelly to our show today. She's the Chief People Officer of Westerm, and she recently transitioned from Chief HR Officer at Smoky Bones. She's going to be talking about how trauma-informed Smoky Bones transition to human-centric leadership. Today's interview is part of the Connex Executive Insight Series brought to you by Connex Partners. Connex Partners is the number one executive network for HR and healthcare professionals. Connex connects business leaders from across the U.S., helping them solve their greatest challenges together. Today's discussion will explore human-centric leadership through the trauma-informed lens. So Rachel, let's jump in. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are? And then we're going to jump into how did this all come about? Thanks for having me. I grew up in the Midwest, suburbs of Chicago, and started in the restaurant industry as a pizza cook and not really sure what I was going to do with my life, even that I would have much of a life or much opportunity. And I quickly found my home in the industry and really connected to the opportunity that existed. And I grew. I had a wonderful experience there, grew in a large organization and had a few experiences after that before joining Smoky Bones. I reside in Dallas, Texas with my two boys, both on the spectrum. So we are busy household and uh, busy life. Thank you. So as a public facing food service organization, how did you evolve the business in the face of the pandemic? And how did that become the impetus for redefining your approach to leadership? We very much believe in the statement, never let a good crisis go to waste. The pandemic was a huge crisis. It required us to rethink everything. In a matter of three days, we were down 80% in our revenue. And dining rooms shut down, communities in lockdown, everything changed. And people couldn't even come to restaurants. They couldn't dine in. So we had to immediately change our business model and deal with being down 80% in revenue it was a question of how are we going to do this and survive? And not only how are we going to do it and survive, how do we do this and navigate through in a way where we can thrive on the other end? Because we will survive. We want to thrive and we want our teams to thrive. So the fact that when you're down 80% in revenue and you have those kinds of business disruptions, it's a huge opportunity to redefine your operating model, but then also to go, how do we help people navigate through this? Because we can't do it alone. And this is going to be incredibly hard. So how do we do it? That was the impetus for the rebirth. I know we all came out of the pandemic, so we've all had some experiences, but we had different experiences. So you were in food service. I was relatively cautious, but we still went to restaurants when they were open. We sat outside, we wore our masks, those kinds of things. My understanding from talking to servers They're expected to require people to put on their masks and they get into conflicts about, you know, whatever the position is of the patron who may or may not believe they need to wear a mask. And then there's someone right next to them who's terrified about being in a public space and yet they chose to go out to your restaurant. So you're balancing the safety and you talk about 
trauma-informed. Typically, we think of trauma being going to the ER, not to a restaurant. But many of our public-facing employees, whether they're working at Costco or Smoky Bones or any other people service organizations, were facing various levels of trauma Many people haven't considered what did it feel like for the kid who's trying to pay their way through college, who doesn't have a lot of experience, or you as the 18-year-old when you started working, or 16, who hadn't yet developed the autonomy and the comfort of confronting angry and mean patrons at some points. Absolutely. It was very traumatic for everyone in the organization, and in particular leaders as well. Because not only were we flipping our business model, you know, when you're trying to change on a dime, stuff doesn't happen right. It's not smooth. Change is very difficult. So you're doing that overnight while people are under extreme compensation pressures. So we did not take PPP money. We took it on the chin. So everyone was on compensation reduction as well in a population that already in some instances are working paycheck to paycheck. And so what that meant for people was that overnight, the rug is completely pulled out from underneath them. They're trying to figure out how are they going to pay their bills because now they're dealing with, they're not making money. There's no buffer. You, you don't get like a month to figure that out when you're living paycheck to paycheck. You get a day maybe. So they're trying to figure that piece out. Plus dealing with going to a restaurant and each other all have different views. We all had different views too, by the way, as an executive team on this matter. And everybody was scared. In the restaurant industry, you never thought about life and death as part of our work. And now the work that we were doing and the sanitation things and all the precautions was life and death. It was very emotionally challenging and traumatic for people to experience. It's like you're just turned completely upside down and spun around and spit out. And you're like, what do I do? We all had lizard brain. Everybody was in fight or flight, you know, trying to survive. I think you started to say PTSD and it, well, different than we experienced for wartime veterans, people are now being diagnosed with PTSD, especially frontline workers. Their kids are out of school. They still have to show up at work. There's no option for daycare in a traditional send your kids off to daycare. You know, what do you do? Put them in the backseat of your car while you're at work? And there just were, were people who had parents who could care for their kids. That was a great option. But many people didn't. So the trauma seems real. And as a leadership team, I'm assuming you care deeply about the people who look to you for their livelihood. They don't know if they're going to pay their rent. I'm assuming your leadership team has more of a buffer. But to your point, people are living paycheck to paycheck, and they don't have the options that many of us as leaders and executives have. That's exactly right. We very much knew what that meant for people. I remember those early leadership team discussions, and they were grave, and they, we were very concerned about that. And so... This is actually where human-centric leadership was born in our organization. While we knew we had to make these really tough business decisions, which were the right decisions for the team, we're like, this isn't about a bonus. <laughs> this is about us having and surviving and not going bankrupt and having this thing that we've all put our blood, sweat, and tears in, making it happen for people. I have complex PTSD, so I understand. I understand that very much. And so... That's when we said, okay, well, we know we have to make this really hard decision, 
But you know what? There's a lot that we can do to wrap our arms around people and walk across this bridge. We actually had this visual of a bridge. <laughs> like this is the bridge and the plan of what we need to do. And we need to walk our teams, our guests, and our shareholders across this bridge together, holding hands together. We knew like, okay, well, if this is going to happen and people's income are going to go down, what are all the resources we can get people that are going to help them? My team, I said, we're not HR. We're social workers right now. Our job is to help this population get through this. So our job is to help them with unemployment. We adjusted schedules, how people wanted. We were super flexible. We were giving food away at cost. We're like, we can't give it to them for free, but we can give it at cost at wholesale. That's, you know, I mean, give somebody a piece of protein that's going to feed their family for a week at something that is a fourth of the cost at a grocery store. We were writing letters for landlords, telling people how to, you know, all the different resources, if you remember, that were happening. We were regularly communicating, pulsing that through all of our communication systems, which we added multiple to have that outreach. That was super important. In moments of crisis, radical transparency and communication is crucial. People are terrified. They need to know what's going on. And even if you don't know what's going on, they need to know we're in this together. You're communicating that social support. So we threw everything that we could and we're constantly working as a team, HR team, operators, and everyone thinking about how do we walk across this bridge together? I love the visual of a bridge and that you include your financers the people who are going to allow us to stay in business and keep working and who may give additional financing during the shortfall, your employees who you have a stewardship responsibility for in a way, and your customers who certainly need to stay safe and continue to also feed their families. I love the image. It brings back some image of a Grimm's fairy tale kind of we're walking through the woods together, which is a pleasant, not traumatized image. Yes, very much so. How many restaurants do you have? Because as our listeners are engaging, I want to paint the picture that this isn't you with three stores down the street from each other that you can pop into. This is across the country and hundreds. We have 62 locations, 3,000 employees across 16 states on the eastern half of the country. So the need to communicate directly and engage with that population and drive those messages and make sure people had what they need, knowing that we were this multi-site dispersed organization and that things were different in different parts of the country. Being in Atlanta was very different than being in Pittsburgh or New York City or Miami. So managing that and getting the right messages to the right people and those systems were incredibly important because there was quite a bit of variety of what was going on. New York was shut down, right? Because they were the epicenter. Yeah. And Miami seemed like they didn't even acknowledge it happened. So <laughs> Exactly. And so if you think about sales and all the things that then, then affects, right? Hours and supply and just how you're operating and the things that were changing. I mean, every day I was watching multiple press releases, multiple news sources, reading CDC, reading WHO, all to give people guidance that they needed for where they were. Your role changed from traditional HR, you said, to social worker, but also you're the chief medical officer in some ways or part of the chief medical team. This now became a healthcare issue. So you're engaging in stuff that 
I'm guessing you didn't go to college for. <laughs> uh, very much so. <laughs> you know, between myself and the COO, we were studying that stuff. And we actually, Smokey Bones and myself and a couple other portfolio company leaders ended up writing the opening guide for the PE firm because we were studying it so much and we were so, okay, here's how we're going to handle this and how do we communicate and, and all the systems that you do. But I've never been a traditional HR person, that's for sure. But in this moment, you just step into the space of where you're needed. You go, what does the organization need? Because really as HR, you're about the culture and the organization and guiding the organization to achieve a strategic plan. Here, that was all about how do we help the team? How do we wrap our arms around people? And how do we make sure people are safe? How do we make sure we're not going to get sued? How do we make sure that customers are going to feel safe? Because at that time, if you remember too, there's all sorts of conflicting information. So it was about keeping people factually safe. But at the time, we didn't know what the facts totally were. So we needed people to feel safe as well. And then add in all the social traumas that started to occur in the country. So then it became not only just about physical and health safety and the health safety of them and their families. Because our people have families, right? They're worried about, do I bring this stuff home? I have, you know, these other conditions. So there was a lot of work done there to help people navigate through. But then it was also about how do I help people feel safe in a different way? as those issues started to really come up. You said the leadership team disagreed, just like all the other humans, that if you put five people in a room at that point in time, you had a lot of different points of view that in the past, we were able to kind of set aside our differences, come to work, get the job done. Now our political views, our religious views come to the fore as we've got people who think this is absolutely a health crisis and we believe Dr. Fauci. We've got other people who think it's all made up. It's a conspiracy to whatever the conspiracy theories were. Presumably you had people on the leadership team that were some reflection of the population. How did that work to get an organization to shift to human-centric, where others went purely financial. This is all about survival, and we're going to cut stuff, and we're going to make sure we as an organization stay alive. You took the opposite path. Yes. You know, I thought about this a lot, right? Because there are moments that, you know, you have to personally not react to comments somebody makes or what they think, because I'm part of a group, too, who has an opinion, a strong one. But we talked about the fact that we were all so different, and that the power was in that difference. It was in the fact that because we were all coming from different vantage points, where we would land collaboratively on whatever the topic was, we recognized it worked. It was so much better than what any of us as individuals thought. That was the impetus for our Humanifesto line that says, none of us have all the answers, but together we all do. And it was really from that. While we had differences, Fundamentally, we all were valued our teams and our business and navigating through this to come out to thrive. That was universal. So as long as we stayed focused on that, and even if we started to, we're like, you know, let's come back to this. What is it that's going to help us and our teams navigate through here? That's how we made our decision. And we knew you can't cut your way to thriving. There's no way. And we knew that there was a lot that we couldn't do. We couldn't throw 
billions of dollars at people. So remember the big dogs, they were throwing a lot of money and stuff at people. They're throwing PTO and bonuses and all sorts of stuff. Meantime, we're cutting pay at that time to survive. And the other part was like, hey, look, we can't throw all that stuff at them. But you know what? People are more dynamic and complex than just throwing dollars at them. And we can help them survive financially by doing all these things and then recognize the human being that's there And it doesn't cost anything to have a good culture. It doesn't cost anything to be trauma informed and to wrap your arms around somebody and listen to them and help them navigate through. That's for free. And it's a highly, highly effective method (laughs) to navigating crisis and helping people to succeed. So there's the heart side that's like, this is the right thing to do for all the right reasons. But on the other side, too, it's like, hey, look, even if you don't or you're like, oh, that's wooey or whatever, it'll appeal to your dollars and cents side because we can't survive without our team. And if they all go, we're done. Peace out. Let's call it a day. And so the team knew that and knew that we could do right by people while doing good. We could do both. It wasn't one or the other. That was a big piece as well. So the pandemic is mostly behind us and some companies are, quote, going back to how things were, going back to the office, the way they do business. They are trying to put the pandemic in a box. We went through a tunnel, basically. Now we've come out and we're going to return to normalcy. It sounds like you actually changed the business, the business model, the competency models, the performance management system. You truly leveraged this crisis as an opportunity to transform. So you didn't have a tunnel that you came out of that one side looks like the other side. This is, we went through a dark time and what's on the other side is, you know, I've flown across the ocean and now I'm in the mountains and I started at the coast. What informed that thinking that we're not going back to the old, we're creating an entirely new thing? And then how did the process go about? We all just knew like quickly that the world is not going to be the same. Nine, you remember before 9-11, you remember after 9-11. And we're like, no, this is significant and traumatic and going to be for some time. So there is no going back. We need to quickly come to terms with the fact that we're not just going to wait it out. We can't just wait it out. We have to navigate through with resiliency and integrity and creativity. That's kind of at the very beginning, our CEO is like, we're going to navigate this with resiliency, creativity, and integrity. And because we had to change so much, it allowed us to break out of traditional hierarchical organizations and processes. And because we also furloughed some people, we started these open lines of communication and started really engaging the field and participating and helping us figure out programs, adjustments. It broke all these walls down and we became much more of an agile learning organization. That was crucial for our success. And the reason that people hooked on to like, oh, we're going to keep going in this way is because it worked so incredibly well. We ended up having record levels of turnover through those times. We ended up winning like multiple awards. We started recovering in October of 2020. We had five quarters of leading the industry in growth. So as it started to work, that built confidence in the leadership team and the team like, oh, this works. (laughs) 
I can talk to people and oh, oh. And so then we started to codify the language like, all right, well, now let's visit our core values. And what is it that helped us to be successful? And what is really important to us as we navigate people at all levels in the organization participating in us defining those core values, defining human centric leadership? And it wasn't like us sitting in a room. It was like, what is it that is working? How do we codify and memorialize this and continue to evolve our organization? It's like evolution, right? We're not going to go back. You know, like you don't go back, you go forward. The fact that it was successful and that those changes really helped us to navigate, we wanted to continue to leverage and strengthen those things to help us continue in that transformation. Did you end up having leadership turnover during that time, especially for people who may not have been aligned with the new approach? No. And don't get me wrong. We've had our battles with the great resignation, just like anybody else. But we delivered record levels, low levels of turnover. Our retention was very strong through those phases and through the reopening. And our retention was strong even early on in the great resignation. We did see a peak and then we started to come down again. And we're already at pre-pandemic levels of turnover. And we are ahead of pre-pandemic levels in hourly in staffing. We're up three people while the, per restaurant while the industry is down nine in casual dining versus pre-pandemic. So we very firmly believe that our approach has enabled us the results really started to show. Quite frankly, we saw it in the behavior of our field leaders. It was incredible how those leaders would come forward. They're running their restaurants on reduced pay in this crazy environment, dealing with all the stuff we were talking about, all the social stuff. And then they're like, yeah, I'm going to help build the training for this promotion. Or yeah, I'll jump on this call to inform what we're going to do here because they were empowered They were participating and we listened and we used that feedback. We co-created our strategies, our programs. It was together we were doing all of this. And that involvement and participation and the high levels of communication, we do a weekly town hall on camera, executive team, everybody, all management every week, still do it. We'll continue to do it. Those relationships and that engagement drove us to have record levels of turnover, staffing, you know, get great place to work, certified, all that stuff. It came from that. Just going, how do we get through this together? And I'm not going to do stuff to you. We're going to do stuff together. We're going to do it together. And by the way, if you have a different opinion about something, even if you're pissed off about it, call me. I want to hear it. Let's talk. Let's work it through. In fact, the person who leads field HR for me now, (laughs) she was one of those people who early on, she was like, dude, I don't know, man. I don't know about blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, ooh, let's talk. And she gave me invaluable feedback that then helped me shape certain things with the field. And she was empowered. Oh, by the way, she led our staffing initiative that's crushing the industry versus everybody else. Like, huh, it's funny how that works. The analogy I think of is elite military units that when they're out on a mission, they pull together and there's a way of working that is so lockstep that's hard to replicate any place else in the world. They're under high pressure and they have built the alignment among the team in a way that most of us just don't have the opportunity to experience nor the need. It sounds like you built that kind of alignment. And one of the things I hear from fighter pilots and folks like that is you come back to traditional civilian life 
And it's just hard to find that camaraderie that they had when they were in these intense situations. It seems that you have been able to tap into that energy, for lack of a better word, that creates the pressure cooker and it's life and death and it's good people coming together. There's really an opportunity that we just don't see in times where life is not so stressful. Absolutely. It's an incredible impetus for change. When you're in survival mode, you learn who you are. You learn what you're made of. And collectively, you learn what you can accomplish as a team. And it it required high levels of trust, high levels of alignment around core things, but not all the details. We don't have to agree. And I might even do something that looking back on you go like, Rachel, you could have done that better. or You could do this or we should have done that. But that was okay. That psychological safety of failing together. You know, we win together. We fail together. We fail forward. We trust that we're all doing things with creativity, integrity, resiliency, and are bonded by our purpose and that that's where we're all going together. It's funny. You mentioned what you were saying. Sometimes Miranda will say on my team, she's like, it's so fun. It's wild. She's like, it's almost like you guys like talked before the meeting. We're like, no, we didn't. (laughs) We're just like naturally there together because while we're such different, different people as executives, we all were bonded and aligned around our purpose and our values. We talk about the idea of shared mutual purpose. I get the importance of that and I work with clients to develop it. And yet you're personifying it. We all get the words. Our company has a mission statement, but most people aren't in this kind of a pressure cooker where it becomes core to who they are, not just the words on the wall. Even the people who shape the words on the wall often don't have it in their, I'm thinking almost like your cells are vibrating at that frequency. And that's what allows you to come into a room from different political views and different religious views and still line up around this very core thing that we're here to do. We're all human beings. Fundamentally, when we were talking about human-centric leadership and how we defined it, and this really came out when George Floyd was murdered. And James and I were talking about like, okay, how are we going to navigate through this? And, you know, what do we do? And we really codified that, no, we're all human beings. We all have a unique social experience that we celebrate. We actually celebrate our individuality. The fact that we're all special birds and we dig it. We're all very unique special birds. We celebrate that. And we do that in all sorts of different ways. We respect our differences and that they exist. We pay respect to that. And we value what bonds us, our shared humanity. We're all human beings stumbling our way through life, (laughs) trying to take care of our families, trying to make it, trying to deal with the crazy stuff that happens. We all have trauma, different traumas. That's the unique social experience side of it. And all have our own histories of trauma. And, you know, if you're navigating through something with PTSD, it's incredibly difficult. And the mental health implications of what we've all gone through, that's the next pandemic of exploding mental health challenges. I don't need to understand your particular stuff fully. Like, I don't know what it's like to be a black man walking down a sidewalk at night. I will never know what that's like. But I know what it's like to be a human. I know what it's like to be scared. I know what it's like to not know, and I know what it's like to be unsafe. So I can connect to that. We all can connect to that kind of core humanity. And that's how we walk together is that bond. 
I love what you just said. I was working with Hennepin Health, the safety net hospital in Minneapolis who cared for George Floyd. They were his healthcare providers. And then this thing happened, his murder, the PTSD of people who say, this is one of our patients. This is a man we know. He's in our care. You're showing the same level of humanity and personhood. How do you convey that to an organization? Most of our business organizations aren't wired for compassion. It's adding a new ingredient into the recipe. For some people, they're going to have a really strong autoimmune response that we don't go there here. I don't want it. It's not welcome. Your sense of humanity and personhood sounds like it permeated an organization of 3,000 people. Help me see that process because I would love to replicate it. Well, thank you for that. I, I mean, it can always be refined. <laughs> Work in progress. So we started our communication with the pandemic, but then as George Floyd, Brianna Taylor, and all the other things that just started to cause so much upheaval for people, we talked about it. We did not ignore it. We did not take a political stance. The first couple days, I was watching it, and I remember talking to my CEO, and I was like, uh, this is really bad. This is really bad. And we need to think about what is going on with people. I remember calling somebody, I go, if you think I'm calling you because you're Black, that is correct. You're the Black person on this team, and I need to know how you are feeling because I'm not going to pull any punches. I understand. <laughs> that you may have some stuff going on. And I want to see, how are you doing? And we just talked about it. And so I started just talking to some people. I talked to my team about it. Then I talked to our COO and I said, this isn't about like what we think about it or the politics around it or any of that stuff. But our leaders are faced with this. They're having their own feelings. We're having our own feelings. And so we need to help people to how they're going to handle that because that's real and that's going to show up in our restaurants. And it did. And so we had to help our leaders with how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond when people are feeling all sorts of ways? And so we did. So we talked to people, we educated people around trauma and what happens to human beings and their brain when they're traumatized and how that affects behavior and how you as a leader hold a safe space. And we role modeled that. I mean, there were moments on some of these calls. We have an internal social media channel with all of our managers. It was real-time communication. By the way, at the time I launched it, the administrator didn't have the ability to delete a comment. So if somebody went on there and started going blast, they could, and I couldn't do anything about it. Only thing I could do was shut down the channel. That never happened. People would go on and we talked, but we would talk. When we taught people about it, and help people understand what's happening with human beings and that you don't need to understand exactly what it's like to be this person. You need to understand trauma and connect to pain. And you know pain. You know this. And we've just been through it with our teams on it so many ways. So we role modeled it. We talked about it. We held the meetings with our directors. And then we held meeting with all of our management team and we talked about it. And then we talked also about our focus on how we help our teams through it, what resources are available, how to handle those moments. We talked about, hey, what do you do if somebody comes in and somebody wants to protest? We're like, support them. That's their right. You want to go protest? Go for it. 
can you let us know you're not going to make your shift tonight so we can cover it? (laughs) You know, we're like, cool, rock on, man. That was our attitude. And then on the ground, like we had restaurants that were in those areas that were where some of the rioting was. And we're like, you guys make the decision. What we care about is safety. And everyone has a right to feel safe emotionally, psychologically, and physically. That was our thing. Everyone has a right to feel safe. And we want everyone in the SB Nation, in our restaurants, that is a safe place. And this is how you protect that. Here's how you help people process through the trauma and those moments and hold a safe space and help them come down, come back. And we walked it together. And then we stayed in contact. We talked about it. We were live responses. And the team was incredible. And that's how we did it. It was just like, our focus is our team, our shared humanity, helping people to feel safe, understanding the dynamics of what's going on. And we walk it together. Then we started to memorialize and go, okay, how do we pull it into these other other things? But that's how we did it. And leaders were like, oh, <laughs> like, how did you do that? Lots of therapy. <laughs> I'm like, go to your therapist. I've got a great one. Do you want to rec out? That's how you do it. And you can, and you can learn the techniques and it's okay. So it sounds like you taught the techniques, you role modeled the techniques, you role played the techniques. One of the challenges is this is an area where people just don't know what to do. The number of men who are afraid that a female colleague will cry is astounding. I realize I'm using generalities and I know we all don't do the same thing, but there are a lot of women who just cry when they're angry and they don't want to be treated in response to their anger, like, oh, little girl, you're okay. They're pissed. They want to be able to cry and scream and be pissed like a man does. Our physiology is different. Building the skill among the leadership team just to deal with basic human emotions. Because the the women crying is one thing. People are going through much bigger trauma and they're having all kinds of emotions. And when our frontline supervisor does care but doesn't know how to express it, then we end up with people disenfranchised and angry and they quit or they don't show up. Building the skills of therapy and coaching and basic human care for people who they care. Most of them care. Think of all the situations people grow up in. Most people aren't taught and most people haven't had a good therapist. So they're just doing the best they can absent any skills. Oh, very much. It's scary for people. I mean, we shame emotion, we judge emotion, we suppress emotion. We have all sorts of issues as a country around our perspective of mental health. It's really hard for people. So talking about that, what you were just saying that, hey, look, we know this is weird. Yeah, dude, I've had 40 years of practice. I got a lot of stuff in my life. So Yeah, I get that not everybody has done that. And so it's like a balance of helping people understand the science. Okay, well, if I help them understand the science around it and lizard brain and how you do this. And I mean, there were times we were doing the butterfly hug. I don't even know if you know the bike, the butterfly hug, which is the technique that frontline workers in global crisis are taught. It's basically it's bilateral tapping and breathing to help you just calm in the moment We would do butterfly hugs. I was teaching people breathing exercises, all that stuff. Just the fact that we talked about it and talked about the fact that it was okay. It's okay. And me talking about my own challenges, like, guys, it's okay. None of us are this like pretty perfect thing. 
we're like a cocktail of mental health, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, mix it up and hope you got it right. And sometimes you've got to go like, I need more of this. We're all this concoction. And so just destigmatizing it, not going too far, because if you go too far, then leaders, you turn them off and they're like, oh, you're all wooey. Staying connected to the science, show the technique so that it's successful and connecting it to the business pieces, those hard business things. That is powerful for helping leaders to navigate through it. And then you also do some individual coaching with people. As an HR leader, you do a lot of executive coaching and you need to talk to them about their own perspective on mental health and their own experiences and their own biases. And you work through that in those private one-on-one coaching sessions as well. So there's the education and the science. There's the modeling it. There's the tying it to the business. So it's not just, oh, you had a therapist and you're trying to make all of us do that. Or you like yoga, so you're one of those people. There's hard science behind this now. The mindfulness, the wellness, meditation, there's really good science around all of it. How do I bring it in because it's appropriate? Not because it's, I'm walking around with a bag of crystals in my pocket and I'm going to impose that on you. And then connecting it to the business strategy, that piece is what's often missing is we hit one side of it, but not the full stream. I completely agree. And the business side of it is extraordinarily important because it's part of how you hardwire it into the organization and organizational practices. It's part of how you get the buy-in. And it's important to make that connection because there's a million things that you can focus on as a business. We often say we're a target-rich environment. There's a lot you can do. You do make prioritization. You make decisions about what are the key things that are going to help us accomplish the strategic plan. And that's not a bad thing. (laughs) Now, when you do it with core values, those are your guardrails. You do it with your strategic plan that's balanced. But then when you understand and you see like, oh, when I do this with people, they deliver this in result. It's very powerful. I'll tell you a very quick story. We were on several weeks of compensation reduction across the board. We didn't know when it was going to end, by the way. Every week we were giving people an update around compensation increases. So it was that tentative. And we were making decisions literally day by day, week by week. We reinstated compensation starting at the front line first, then management before RSC, the head office. And we went to the field and we said, look, we're reinstating your compensation we are not out of the woods. This is not a sign that, woohoo, all right, we're good at all. We are doing this because we're at this state. We don't want to wait until we're all the way there. You are our priority. And appropriately so, you are the first to be reinstated. But here's the deal. We need that. And then you guys adjusting your schedules to deliver 60,000 more in, I think it was like 60 or something more in weekly sales. And when you do that, when we're there, then we can reinstate everybody at the RSC. Then we can afford to reinstate everybody at the RSC, all your office. So we're like, we need your help. And the field was so like, they delivered more than double that result immediately. And boom, we flipped that switch. I mean, it's just like situation after situation where we're just astonished. And so for like our CFO and our money guys, they're like, oh my gosh. Look at that. Look at, and I'm like, yeah, it costs nothing (laughs) to build culture. It's just about how you treat people and doing the right things and creating the right experience and outcome and understanding that there's energy there and 
that is to be valued and supported and fostered. And it's highly powerful for the business. So our CFO will tell you today, there's no way that we could have made it through this pandemic. We would have been bankrupt had it not been for our culture and what our people did. One of the things I hear is strong transparency, where some organizations would have said, we're reinstating the field, not the office, but we can't tell anybody because that will feel unfair. You took the opposite approach. We're reinstating you and we need your help so that everyone can pay their mortgage or their rent and feed their families. I call it radical transparency. And that is so important for creating trust. In a VUCA world (laughs) where things are volatile, uncertain, chaotic, ambiguous, right? VUCA world, you know, you're going through the pandemic. It's like a free fall. I call that free fall in dystopian universe. You're like, is this real? Like what's going on? That you don't have to have all the answers, but you need to be transparent about what's going on, what you do know, and transparent about what you don't. Because people will know if you BS them, they're going to know. If you don't know, they know anyway, even if you're quiet. But if you're quiet, then you're creating a tremendous amount of anxiety with people unnecessarily. You're you're hurting them by doing that. People can handle very tough information. They can handle very hard, hard realities when you tell them and you're straightforward and you walk through it. It's kind of like that thing about anxiety, right? And like if something's making you anxious and if you distract yourself, all that does is make you more anxious. What's the same thing? Like if you just like avoid it, it just makes it worse versus I'm going to enlist you. We're in it together. (laughs) We're all in this together. We don't have all the answers and we're going to talk regularly and have this two-way communication. That was very, very important as well. Wasn't just us disseminating information vis-a-vis our written updates and our weekly town hall and our stuff. It was dialogue. It was conversation, open dialogue on those town halls and through our group me channel and through all of that stuff and just being honest. And it was scary for leaders at first to do that. They had a real hard time with that at first, but once they saw the power of that and how much that empowers people and what happens when you empower people, they saw like, human resiliency in action. And it was, it was huge. As I listen to you, I hear not only leaders being trustworthy, but also trusting their followers. I have to trust that you'll do the right thing, even when I don't control you, or especially when I don't control you. So this really is trustworthy and trusting And followers then being able to step up, you know, this idea that there's reciprocal leadership, that as soon as you say, these results depend on you, you and the field are leading us. The only way we're going to get the results we want, I can't lead enough to drive those results. You've got to do it. Kind of the idea that leader is leading and leader is following and knowing when to do which. In so many ways including like as we were developing initiatives, like we were changing marketing things and all the stuff that you normally take months to plan and implement, we were doing in days, in some cases, hours. And so there's a lot of messiness that happens when you're implementing marketing programs, product promotions, new packaging, launching virtual brands, curbside delay, all this stuff, right? (laughs) So it's like, We need to empower and trust people. And so we told them that, like, we trust you. Even if you make a bad decision, we've got your back. 
We've got your back. You hurt somebody. No, bye. You have to live our values, but we've got your back. We're all trying to figure this out together. And our functional leaders often sought that feedback out and quickly would respond in the moment as we were implementing things and adjusted things that made a huge impact for the entire system that affected customers. It was really, really powerful. It really drove that agile learning organization and people realizing command control is done. You cannot control people. And why are you trying to do that? You get so much more when you unleash their power. We use the phrase often that the leader has moved from command and control to the mind of the scientist. And one of my favorite no longer living people is Einstein. And that I can formulate a hypothesis. I don't have the answer, but I'm also not clueless and empty headed. So I formulate a hypothesis. I do a test or an experiment or whatever you want to call it. And scientists aren't expected to get it right. They're expected to be directionally correct. And also that if I have a hypothesis that something will work and I disprove it, that isn't as important of a learning as proving I was right, because now we're not going down the wrong path. So these things that we call mistakes or failures, they're disproving my hypothesis, which is brilliant learning. Because imagine how many companies have invested in something because they think their leader's right and they're commanding and controlling. So they're going to force you down the wrong or a less successful path. This agile mindset, the scientist mindset, you go off, you create a well thought out experiment. You're not an idiot. <laughs> you're, you know, you're planful and you're getting good input and then you go try it and you are moving in a direction, which is better than just stuck sitting in your room. And people I'm assuming at different restaurants in different states are piloting different things. You come back together, you synthesize, you then do the next set of experiments. It feels different when I'm engaging in the experiment rather than I'm waiting for someone on high to tell me what to do. And I'm just going to sit here quietly and do whatever until Rachel tells me what to do. I'm going to just sit here dutifully in my house waiting for directions. Right. First, that's a horrible place to be, not having any control or any say in what happens to you, especially in the environment of chaos of what was going on. And B, they know a lot. Our leaders and the people on the ground, people interfacing directly with customers and employees, they know a lot. And they know a lot more about what makes a successful initiative on the ground than the leader does who's building the initiative. When you're also doing things that involve technology and ordering and online and all the digital stuff, which we were super heavy in because everything was coming in through digital, very little on the phone. It was all coming through online. So again, our model is totally different. So you've got all this volume coming through those digital channels. If we didn't have that relationship, if we launched something where let's say a key wasn't working right and it was ringing up at the wrong price or a customer couldn't do something online the right way. We were now getting that feedback immediately within seconds, minutes of the issue happening. And then it would get, have visibility to the right ops folks, to the chief digital officer, et cetera. So you were able to switch and solve things immediately that impacted our sales, impacted our guest experience, impacted our employees in a very positive way that would have harmed our business had we not known that or had it taken longer for the issue to surface. So I think like people really understood and started to see just the power of that collaboration. 
None of us have all the answers. Together, we all do. But I need to also, as a general manager, feel safe enough to go on that group me channel and tell the chief digital officer something's not working right. That's not easy to do unless I really feel safe and I've been given that encouragement, et cetera, to do that. It's interesting that even you at the senior level were experiencing opportunities to be very candid with your executive colleagues and having to enlist them and enroll them in making changes quickly and that those aren't easy conversations. No, they are not. (laughs) Not at all. But I think that all of us being centered on kind of core values helped. And we had debates. It's not like all those conversations aren't just like, oh, how's the weather, blah, blah. (laughs) We would have some intense debates. There were times where like, I need to breathe. Okay. (laughs) Let's regroup in an hour with a cocktail on Zoom and talk about this. (laughs) You know, they're not easy conversations, but that's why you're in the job you're in. You're not here to have easy, light conversations. I'm here to have the tough ones because that's the right thing to do. And so I think all of us had this sense of duty. We all understand that we can have debate. But that actually, that leads to much, much better thinking mm-hmm. and we end up in a great place. So so part of it was having those discussions and debate. Part of it was also me not trying to control people because I can't control what you think about that. I can't control those things. So it's more about me helping you to be an effective leader. I'm not trying to convince you of something. I'm trying to help you be effective in your role and lead. And I'm here to help you to do that. That's a big part of it and a big part of trust for a CPO to be able to influence people is is them knowing you have their best interests at heart and you know what you're doing. We all talk about collaboration and how important it is. We don't talk about how difficult it is. It sounds like some of us live in this magical world where everyone just collaborates. What I hear from you is there's no fairy dust. There may be cocktails after hours on Zoom, but this is hard stuff. It's emotionally challenging. It's thought challenging. The feeling that we're never going to get through this. And I really wish I didn't have to work with this person some days. And then we come to a better solution. The pixie dust doesn't exist. Not if you're in a healthy team. It doesn't. A high-performing team. High-performing teams, they duke it out at times. They debate. They don't personally attack. That's not what we're talking about. But they have productive, robust conflict. And they hammer stuff out and it's required for high-performing teams. It's a sign of a high-performing team. So we reminded ourselves of that too. There's certainly times where it's like, so do you want to go get lunch? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. I was feeling a little (laughs) spicy on that day. You know, I was, you know, we've all had to, had to apologize and, you know, adjust. And we all learn about ourselves and how we grow too. So I think, you know, just that learning growth mindset helps in that collaboration. Because when you've got a growth mindset, you're not trying to just hold on to your thing. It helps with that robust dialogue because then you're also demonstrating an openness to other thinking. It's not, I have this opinion and I'm trying to persuade you. I'm open to the possibilities. So in our last couple of minutes, you're now leaving your role at Smoky Bones. You're going to West Durham. They're owned by the same PE company, so you're not leaving the family, but you're moving down the hall. Tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing at West Durham. 
I'm really excited and feel very fortunate for the opportunity, especially since my brother passed away from melanoma at the tragic age of 36. It's something that has tremendous meaning and purpose for me to go into this space, to go into healthcare and specifically go into dermatology. And our purpose is healthy skin for life. And when you think about skin, (laughs) it's the largest organ that we have. It affects the intersection with identity, psychology, diversity, trauma is huge. It's huge. As a chief people officer, we'll be partnered with the executive team to build an elite community for providers. Because when you start to pull providers together and create a community where they're collaborating, learning from each other, doing research with each other, trying new technologies, right? It elevates everyone, which ultimately elevates the healthcare for everyone in that community. And so facilitating that elite provider community, an amazing culture wrapped in teams, wrapped around those providers and those patients in those community, I call them everybody's a caregiver, we're all caregivers, is an amazing opportunity to build this practice and co-create that with all these leaders and providers. I love hearing how you are taking what you did so successfully at Smoky Bones and moving it into not only healthcare, but a space that's so crucial to you. Yes. It's an amazing opportunity. I, it's one of those where I go, whoa, is this really happening? Okay, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, it's been such a pleasure to hear your transparency and authenticity as you talk about the challenge, the successes, but also the the tough times moving through to create an environment that is so much better than what you started with and what we all started with. We didn't even know this was possible at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. Yeah. How would listeners learn more about the work you've done and contact you? Well, you can certainly contact me through LinkedIn. I am definitely very active there. I also work with Verdant Consulting around a lot of this work. And there's just a tremendous amount of literature out there about understanding burnout, mental health. I think the more you understand those things, the more it helps you to be trauma-informed as a leader and help lead your organizations through this. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We're all navigating a very, Rachel called it VUCA, a time that is very volatile still, even post-pandemic. Many people are immunocompromised and still trying to stay safe and still trying to make informed decisions about vaccines and who gets to leave the house and who doesn't. At the same time, people's worlds have been upended with the war in the Ukraine and supply chain challenges. And it is through understanding trauma, through building trust, through transparency, through mutual support that we will end up being better off at the end than we were at the beginning. So I want to thank all of you, not only for listening and liking and sharing us, but also for the work you're doing in the world. I'd like to thank Connex Partners and Rachel for joining our show today. 